You know, we uh, <clears throat> talked the other night about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, and what that means is to be what we might have called in some days being a, an apprentice, someone who would go with someone, live with them for a period of time so that they could learn the craft. So if I were to be a blacksmith, I would go spend some time with that blacksmith, and I'd likely uh, stay with him, and I would learn how to heat the metal and how to beat that metal and to get it into the place that it ought to be. So a disciple of Jesus Christ is one who would learn at the feet of Jesus to learn his craft, and that is to be the kind of people uh, that we, he would, has called us to be, to go and to seek and to save that which was lost, to uh, continue to help others as, in their journey as they come to Christ. So with that in mind, I just want to ask you a question. I'm not asking for you to answer it out loud. I want you to think about it in your mind. In your opinion, what is the one thing that identifies us to the world that we are his students, that we are his disciples? I don't know what you might be thinking about, but I know what possibly you might be thinking about. Is it that we are baptized into Jesus Christ? And so we're known by the fact that we're known to be his because our sins are washed away. We're united with him in baptism, and that identifies us as a Christian to all the world. Or is it that we do things right when we come in the assembly? That we sing just right, that we have the right kind of preaching, we preach the word of God, we preach the truth, we, we do it the way you're supposed to do it. Is that what identifies us to the rest of the world, that we are the students of Jesus Christ, that he is our mentor and we are his apprentice? Let me set the scene for you just a moment. In John chapter 13, Jesus had had the Passover meal with his, his disciples. He's washed their feet and he says to them, I'm going away. Now, this is right after he exposes that Judas was going to betray him. But he says to them, I'm going away. And I'm going away, so I'm telling you this. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you. He goes on to say this. By this... All will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Is it right that we're baptized? Absolutely. Are we identified with Christ when we do that? We are. Is it right that we do things right in the assembly? Absolutely. All those things are right. But this is the only thing I know in Scripture that identifies us as being his disciple. And that's if we have love for one another. Now, what... He said something about this was new. What was new about it? Well, if you go all the way back to the Old Testament, you find that, that the Bible tells us that God in his law said, love your neighbor as yourself. So this concept of love is not new. Loving our neighbor is not new. I don't even think the idea of loving one another is new. What's new? What's different? He says, love one another as I have loved you. And that's a different kind of love. And so this evening, if we want to be the disciples of Jesus Christ and we want to be identified with him, how do we do that? How do we love like he did? Now we could talk about all kinds of things about how specifically the actions that he did, but I'm more interested this evening on the disposition or the attitudes that he had. 
Because it's about, if we have that, we'll love the way that we're supposed to. And it's about the manner in which he loved that we want to identify and we want to investigate and we want to live by. So number one, in John chapter 2, he reveals something to us that's very, very interesting. Now, he had performed some miracles and he had prophesied about some things and he had gained a following. But notice what he says here in John chapter 2 and verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. What Jesus knew at this time, because he knows the nature of mankind, he knew that it was too early to reveal the fullness of the plan. It was too early to tell them about all that he was going to do. Because he knew what was in man and he knew what man would do with that information. And eventually they did. But it wasn't till then that he needed to tell them. You know what this tells us is Jesus loves us understandingly. He knows exactly who you are. He knows exactly who all men are. That's what he's saying here. He loves us understanding. He is not blind to who we are. He's not ignorant of what we do and what we think about. You know, I'm going to be a little bit transparent here this evening. I've been talking about that some, so I might as well be transparent. I do a lot of driving. I did a lot of driving in Fort Worth, Texas. And now I do a lot of driving in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And a lot of driving in between a turnpike, which let me tell you, that's frustrating. And when I'm driving, and somebody does what they're not supposed to do, it just goes all through me. And I think, that person needs justice. Let me, I'm going to tell you a story, something I saw the other day. I, I was stopped at a stoplight, and because I just stopped... So, so that you know I'm not texting while driving. We were stopped, and it just turned red, so I knew I had time to check my phone. I was doing that, and I looked up, and I noticed that this guy up here was looking back. And I thought, well, what did I do? Because I thought he was looking at me. What did I do to, to this guy that he would be looking back? Did I, is there something wrong? And then I decided to look in my rearview mirror, and you know what I saw? It was crazy. There was a guy that was out of his car with a hammer in his hand, and he was just wailing on the back of a guy's motorcycle. <laughs> I couldn't believe what I was seeing. The guy got off his motorcycle, went over there, and started kicking the guy's headlight. The justice side of me, the judgment side, whatever you want to call it, wanted to call the police. And now, of course, it was too late. By the time we started going, that motorcycle just sped off, and the other guy turned, and it was over. I don't, I don't know what happened. It was, it was a weird deal to me. But when I see stuff like that, I just think, where's the cop when you need him? Where's the justice when we need justice? And so sometimes I even do something I'm not supposed to do because I'm going to teach that person a lesson, and that's more dangerous. Don't do that. But that's the way I feel about things. And that's just driving in Fort Worth or Tulsa. Could you imagine Jesus walking among us? All the things that he knew about you and about mankind? And yet... He still loved us. I want you to think about the immorality of the woman who was brought in adultery and he refused to condemn her. 
the woman who brought the ointment and poured the ointment on his feet, but he offered her as a memorial, even though she was impure. He knew the fear that motivated Peter to deny him, but instead of discouraging him, he encouraged him to go feed his sheep. He knew the greed that possessed Judas to betray him. And he communed with him anyway. And folks, he knows you too. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him whom we must give account. He understands you. He understands your thoughts. He understands your motivations. He understands what what you do and why you do it. He knows all your secrets, secrets that you wouldn't tell anybody. He knows all of that. And he loves you anyway. We should fall to our knees and praise God that despite knowing all of us, the entire being of who I am, he loves us anyway. He's worthy of that praise just for that. In Romans 15 and verse number 7 says, Therefore, receive one another. How? Just as Christ also received us. We all know we have faults. We all know that at times, at some of our best times, we have mixed motivations. We need to love one another anyway. 1 Corinthians 13 and verse number 7 says, Love bears all things. Love endures all things. That despite our failings, we are to love one another. Do you love your brothers and sisters that way? That even when you might suspect that their motivations are not pure, do you love them anyway? Because that's what Jesus did. And that's what we are called to do if we're going to love as he loved us. But just as Jesus loves us understandingly, that leads us to the next thing, the next way that he loves us, and that is he loves us forgivingly. Notice in John chapter 23 and verse 34, as Jesus is hanging on the cross, it says, Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. For whom was he praying? Who was he praying for? He was praying for those that spit on him. He was praying for those that mocked him, that ridiculed him, made fun of him. He was praying for those that beat him. He was praying for those that scourged him. He was praying for those that placed a crown of thorns on his head and jammed it onto his head. He was praying for those that drove the nails in his hands and in his feet. He was praying for those that delivered him to be crucified. And he was praying for you. Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 5 says, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. You see, it wasn't the nails that kept him on the cross. It was his forgiving spirit through love that put him there. Your sins put him on the cross. And he prayed 
that you would find forgiveness. He was praying for you. And we ought to, again, praise him for that. 1 Corinthians, uh, excuse me, Colossians chapter 3 and verse 13 says, As Christ has forgiven you, you also then are to forgive others. The same type of forgiveness that Jesus had is the same type of forgiveness that you need to have. A type of forgiveness that goes so far that you would die on the cross for that person. That's the kind of forgiveness he's called us to. Matter of fact, he uses a parable that tells us about that kind of forgiveness and he compares what we might have against one another as something insignificant compared to the forgiveness that he offers and that he gives us. A debt that we cannot pay. And we need to have that kind of forgiveness. 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 4 says, Love suffers long and is kind. Sometimes... The people we are closest to are the ones that hurt us the most. Sometimes I'm the person that hurts the people I'm closest to the most. If you know me well enough, I'm going to hurt you. I don't mean to, but I'm going to. I hope you forgive me. I hope we have that kind of relationship. I hope we have that kind of spirit among us that when we hurt one another, that we're willing to let it go. You're not just hurting you, you're hurting the body because you're hurting the body because they don't you know you're his disciples if you're not willing to forgive. They don't know it because you're harboring all of this stuff. Jesus didn't harbor it. He let it go. You know, in Matthew chapter 5, we are shown that more important than bringing the gift to the altar, more important than our worship to God, is being right with our brother. Because you cannot be right with God and not be right with your brother. And if we made this our practice, think about that for just a moment. If this was our practice all of the time, in every way, what would that do when we did come together in the assembly? What kind of a spirit would we have in that assembly when we treat one another with this kind of forgiveness because we're going to fail each other? We're going to do something selfishly from time to time. What, what would that do? What, how would that affect how we admonish one another in song? What kind of impact would that have when we intercede for one another in prayer? What might you be thinking if someone that you knew was teaching out of love, yes, preach the truth, but speak that truth in love. If that was our motivation and we knew it, what would that do to, the, to you as a listener if you're not questioning that person's motives, why he's doing that? Why is he preaching to me? What does he know about me? He shouldn't be bringing that up. Hopefully, you know I don't know anything. <laughs> about you guys. I'm just preaching what I preach everywhere because I care about the church everywhere and this is what the church needs to hear. But what does that do to our assemblies when we have that kind of forgiveness and, and camaraderie and love for one another, when we contribute together for a common goal, when we commune together in fellowship in the body and blood of Jesus Christ? 
That's the type of relationships that God wants us to have, that Jesus calls us to because we have this spirit. That no matter what, I'm going to forgive you. But Jesus would not be able to love understandingly, nor would he be able to love forgivingly if he didn't love selflessly. It was all selfless. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 6. Speaking of Jesus says, Who being in the form of God did not consider robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. So I'm going to explain this verse in one way, and then we're going to look at a different version and try to understand it another way. They're both right. They just have a little bit different of an emphasis. What does it mean to be in the form of God, but it not robbery to be equal with God? What does that mean? Well, let me illustrate that in the negative. If I claimed that I was the greatest basketball player of all time, do you know what I'm doing? I'm robbing the one who actually is the greatest of all time, who plays basketball or played basketball. He's no longer playing, by the way. And we can argue about this. It was Michael Jordan. He's the best basketball player that ever played. <clears throat> really, I don't care. But that's my opinion. I do have facts to back it up. But if I said that I was the greatest basketball player of all time, I'm taking something away from the greatest basketball player of all time. Whether it's Michael Jordan, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Kobe Bryant, whoever you want to put in there. Wilt Chamberlain, Bill Russell, whatever. I know there's a bunch of them that could be. It's not LeBron. I know that. But here we are. I would be robbing the greatest because I'm nowhere close. <laughs> I'm probably not the best. No, I'm going to take that back. I am not even the best in this room, <laughs> much less the greatest of all time. So that'd be taking something away from the greatest if I claimed that. I hope that makes sense. But I want to look at it another way in the way that the New American Standard puts it. It says, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. What this is telling us here, that yes, it was, he was equal with God, but what he did with that equality is that he did not grasp it or did not take it. He was willing to let go of that for himself. He was willing to give himself up of his riches to go from sitting at the right hand of God to sitting on a throne in heaven to coming down to earth and becoming like you and me. That's what that means. He, he allowed himself to be emptied of the divine and his divine nature so that he would take on the form of a human. Not only a human, but a servant. And not only a servant, but one who would die on the cross. A criminal. That's what he was willing to do. That is a selfless love. Amen. And 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 9 tells us why he did it. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes 
he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Where are we trying to get to? We want to go to heaven, don't we? If you don't, I don't know why you're here. It doesn't make sense to me if you don't want to go to heaven. So I assume, I'm going to assume that's where you want to go. That's where Jesus was. So he came down to earth and became poor so that you can become rich. So that you can have what he has. So that you can have the divine with you. Isn't that amazing? That is a selfless love. I want to notice Philippians chapter 2. I want to read it for just, if you will. I was trying going to try to do it without these, but I can't. <laughs> Philippians chapter 2 and verse number 3 says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of of the cross. So here's what Jesus, or what Paul in his writing is saying to us. First he says, let this mind be in you. So he's going to tell us how we are supposed to be, how we are supposed to act, and then he makes a comparison. After he tells us that, he says, which was also in Christ Jesus. So he tells us the kind of person that we ought to be, and tells us that it's the mind of Christ. So what are we supposed to do? We're not to glory in ourselves. We're not to value ourselves too highly. Or think of ourselves too good. I've got everything figured out. I do everything that I'm supposed to do. No, you don't. But even then, don't glory in yourself and all the things that you do for the cause of Christ. You haven't done what Christ has done for you. Because he gave up his glory. So... We need to let go of glorying in ourselves. We don't deserve it. He did, and he gave it up anyway. We need to devalue ourselves. And what I mean of, like, of that is not to value ourselves so much and to put more value in me. Jesus didn't value himself. He humbled himself. That's what pride, the opposite of pride. Humbling yourself is, is pride is not necessarily that I think too much of myself. It's that I think of myself too much. He humbled himself. He wasn't thinking of himself. He was thinking of you. So we need to value others instead of ourselves, as he valued others. And that's evident how he valued you. We need to seek the interests of others above ourselves he obeyed his father for your interest, for you. That is the mind that we are supposed to have. He tells us how to have it or what we're to have, and he tells us why. And the motivation is because of who Christ is and what he did for us. And if we're to, ba we're to badge, 
excuse me, if we are to wear the badge of discipleship, it's going to be because we love each other selflessly. In 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 5 says, love does not seek its own. Love says it's not about me. You know, you may be asked to do a lot of things for the church that you don't want to do. You may be called to fellowship when you don't want to fellowship. You may be called to a meal when you don't necessarily want a meal. You don't want to cook a meal. You may be called to cook a meal. There's all kinds of things that you may be called to do or asked to do. You may not want to take that call in the middle of the night. You need to take the call in the middle of the night. Because that is what it means to love selflessly. John 15 and verse 12 says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. We may never, ever be called on to lay down our lives physically. And we talked about this last night, how easy it is to sit back and to say, You know what? If I'm called on to do that, I'll do it. I'll be happy to do it. If I knew that it was Ian's life or mine, I have no issue whatsoever giving my life for Ian. But if Ian calls and says, hey, I need to meet you in Oklahoma City, well, I don't know if I'm willing to do that. It's easy to sit back and say that I do the hard stuff, but when the easy stuff comes along, when the inconvenient, little bit inconvenient comes along, am I really laying down my life for my brother if I'm not willing to get up off the couch and go do what they've asked me to do. In that moment, I'm being selfish, not selfless. And that is not the example that Jesus set before us. And if we're going to be his disciple and the people are going to notice us as his disciple, then that's what we're going to have to do. Because John 13 and verse 35 says, By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's it. That's, that's what we got to do. We got to learn to love one another. And we, ha- we have to learn to do that in the way that Jesus did that. You know, we can spend all day talking about specific ways in which we're to love one another. Bearing one another's burdens. Serving one another. Being hospitable to one another. All kinds of different ways that we can talk about, but it's this attitude It's this disposition. It's this spirit that we've got to have if we're going to do those other things. Because that's what's going to motivate us to do those other things. That is to love with compassion, with grace, and with benevolence. Because that's the kind of love that Jesus loves you. In Acts chapter 2, in verse number 46... It tells us that they continued daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. Why did they do that? Why did they meet like that with one another? What happened earlier in Acts chapter 2? Verse 5 says that there were people from all over the known world, Jews from everywhere, that were there on the day of Pentecost. When Peter preached to them, 3,000 of them repented and were baptized. They gladly received his word, and they were baptized. They sold everything they had back where they came from and gave it to the church. 
What did they have? What did they have there in Jerusalem? They didn't have a job. (laughs) They left that at home. They didn't have possessions. They left those at home. They had a new home. They had a new family. That's why they were together like that. They knew they were all they had. And they were willing to love one another with compassion, with benevolence, with forgiveness. And say, you know what? (laughs) If we're going to live together, we're going to have problems. We're going to see through it. We're going to get through it because Jesus is more important than that. And what kind of impact did they have that day when they were acting like this? Verse 47 says that praising God, they had favor with all the people. Everyone knew who they belonged to. It wasn't by the, the, only by the fact that they followed the apostles' doctrine they did do that. But it was the relationships that they had with one another. And the Lord added to the church every day those who were being saved. When you have that kind of environment in Pampa, Texas, the other people in Pampa, Texas say, I want that. I want to be a part of that family. But it will only happen if you love as he loved. We love you. We want to help you this evening. If you failed or you need forgiveness or you need to forgive whatever issue you might have, we stand ready to serve you selflessly, forgivingly, and understandingly because we all have our issues. We all have our downfalls. We all have our mixed motivations. We get it because we're all there. So if there is something that you need from us, please let us know and we'll pray for you and we'll help you in any way that we can. Let us know by coming forward while we stand and while we sing.